Support for this podcast and the following message come from Wise, the app that makes managing your money in different currencies easy. With Wise, you can send and spend money internationally at the mid-market exchange rate. No guesswork and no hidden fees. Learn more about how Wise could work for you at wise.com. Today on State of the World, how life is transforming in Russian-occupied Ukraine. Thanks for listening to State of the World from NPR. We bring you the day's most vital international stories up close where they're happening. It's Monday, January 22nd. I'm Greg Dixon. Russia controls about 18% of Ukraine. And on the other side of the trenches and mines and mortars of the field of battle, the Kremlin is working to solidify control of the territory it has taken by incorporating the people there into Russian politics and culture. We're going to hear now from someone who is concerned that these occupied areas could slip away from Ukraine for good. David Lewis is a professor at the University of Exeter, where he teaches about post-Soviet politics. He keeps tabs on what's happening in Russian-occupied Ukraine. He recently wrote about it in Foreign Affairs, and he talked with NPR's Scott Detrow. You know, we know a lot about the violence and the human rights abuses that are taking place along the front lines of this war. But you say that there is an administrative occupation taking place in the parts that have been annexed by Russia. What do you mean by that? Yes, alongside all the military, the soldiers, the tanks that you see as the images of occupation, there's also a whole army of bureaucrats that are uh, taking on this task of really trying to incorporate all these lands into the Russian state. And that means transforming their laws, introducing new tax systems, uh, the very sort of everyday bureaucracy of life, including weddings, death certificates, car registrations, um, health insurance, pension payments, all the stuff that the state provides is now being provided, obviously, by the Russian state. And that means a complete transformation of the local governance systems, the local bureaucracies, and that produces also a whole new range of levers for Russia to ensure compliance from the local population. And one of the details in your article is the fact that you need a Russian passport to access a lot of these basic government services. Yeah, so uh, quite incredible, really, rollout of Russian passports. Um, somewhere around 3 million they've rolled out uh, since the beginning of the war to local residents, and these uh, are... Uh, given out without really much choice for locals, because if you want to open a bank account, run a business, get welfare payments, do almost anything really in relation to the state, then you need a Russian passport. As as best as you can tell, and again, talking about a lot of people here, so there's probably not one clear direction or another, but uh, how is this being received by people who live in this parts of Ukraine? Is it just a feeling of, we're here, we're occupied, we have to go along? Are there any sort of signs of pushback in any sort of way that you can follow? Well, of course, that's where the violence comes in. Any kind of pushback is met with extreme repression by the Russian authorities. Uh, Worth bearing in mind that a lot of people have left, so those who are perhaps most likely to be activists, most likely to be opposed to the Russian rule in some kind of very active way. Um, Many of those have fled these territories, particularly younger people, professionals. But then for most people, it's just a case of survival. I think, you know, there's not um, any great sort of upsurge of pro-Russian feeling, certainly. But uh, people have very little choice. Not everybody can leave. And therefore, they're trying to simply get by um, and survive and hope that they see better days. 
So you have a lot of detail about the bureaucratic ways that that, that Russia is establishing itself here. Uh, what about the education system? I thought there were a lot of interesting examples of that. So again, Russia's intent really on uh, sort of re-socializing young people. Most schools in the region had gone over to Ukrainian language education. Um, this is a part of the country where quite a lot of people still speak Russian at home. But more and more young people um, have become really Ukrainian speakers over the last few years. Russia's put a stop to all that. Um, all schools are now back on uh, Russian language education, and they're all uh, really teaching according to the Russian curriculum, which is a particularly uh, sort of narrow curriculum, including a new Russian history textbook, for example, which describes the Ukrainian state as a state run by neo-Nazis, uh, all the kind of falsehoods and propaganda that you get from the Russian state are now being taught in these Ukrainian schools. So this is a huge change in education for young people, but it is a long-term strategy for Russia to re-educate the youth, to try and um, force them to adopt Russian cultural, political uh, and social views over time. And um, uh, we've seen them be relatively successful at doing that in other areas, such as in the Donbass and indeed in Crimea as well. So they have quite a lot of experience in this. And you, and you note that, that there's even a heavy hand in pop culture and arts in terms of what, what is allowed to, to be performed at, at live theaters, the, uh, the movie theaters, what, 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 what films they're playing. What is the larger strategy here? Is it to be able to make an argument that the people who live here feel Russian or is it to change opinions over time? So that if, if, if there were ever negotiation over the fate of these areas, Russia could say, look, these, these people are part of our country. Like, what, what is the thinking of the goal four or five years down the line? I mean, the Russian, essentially the Russian view is that they don't accept that these people really are Ukrainians. Um, they claim that they are effectively Russians who've been at various stages sort of brainwashed into uh, speaking or claiming to have Ukrainian identity. So Russians are trying to put the clock back, really, um, and uh, change uh, people's identities through these cultural, educational instruments. Culture is a very important one, uh, and above all, it means uh, imposing the Russian language. Uh, Ukrainian is uh, really sort of expelled from the public sphere, and Russia's been very active at pulling down all sorts of Ukrainian symbols, uh, anything that really links the region to Ukraine or reminds people they might be part of Ukraine, has been destroyed by the Russians in a very rapid and very brutal way. And all of this, of course, is happening in a moment when Ukraine is, is rightly worried about military aid drying up from the United States, from Western Europe. There's an increasingly hostile climate to more aid for Ukraine in Congress. I and mean, here's uh, the House Speaker Republican Mike Johnson the other day uh, at the White House after a meeting with President Biden about this. We understand that there's concern about uh, the safety, security, sovereignty of Ukraine, but the American people have those same concerns about our own domestic sovereignty and our safety and our security. How concerned are officials in Ukraine about, you know, given given the stalemate of the war, the, the possible uh, drying up of funds and all of this bureaucratic work to, to entrench these regions uh, in Russia – how much of a real concern is it that these parts of Ukraine are just lost for good at this point? Well, it is a genuine concern. I mean, Ukrainian officials really hoped, of course, that there would be a successful counteroffensive during 2023 that would really retake a large part of these lands. If not all of it, then certainly those that have been occupied since February uh, 2022. But that has, of course, stalled at the front line. Um, it's um, clearly 
quite difficult for the Ukrainians to break through the Russian front lines. So uh, the longer this dispute over aid goes on, uh, the more concern there will be in Kiev about the extent to which they really have a realistic prospect of regaining these territories uh, in the short term. That's David Lewis, professor at the University of Exeter. His piece, The Quiet Transformation of Occupied Ukraine, is out now in Foreign Affairs magazine. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That's the State of the World from NPR. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR.